The telephone bell was ringing wildly, but without result, since there was no one in the room but the corpse. So runs the memorable first sentence of Charles Williams's War in Heaven. Yet the novel is no mere murder mystery, but a genre, the metaphysical thriller, that is peculiar to Williams. The discovery of an unidentified corpse in a publishing house is upstaged by the discovery, in that same publishing house, that the Holy Grail has been located all this time at the modest little village of Fardles, where it has been used as a communion chalice. What follows is a battle between the forces of evil, who wish to possess or destroy it, represented by the publishing house's former head, occultist Gregory Persimmons, and the forces of good, led by the unassuming Archdeacon of Fardles. Today we'll talk a bit about Charles Williams himself, as well as the first three chapters of the book. Welcome back to The Inklings, Variety, Hour. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. So that was the first sentence of Charles Williams's supernatural thriller, War in Heaven, which we're going to cover here on the Inklings Variety Hour. I'm Chris Pipkin. And I'm Megan Logsdon. And I'm Annika Smith. By the way, this is pretty different for those of you who have been following our podcasts. It should be three by the time this airs online, The Witch in the Wardrobe. This is a pretty different work and far fewer people have heard of it than the line which in the wardrobe but we want to remind you dear listener that this is the inklings variety hour right? and so we're <laughs> covering here a variety of works by the inklings um, which is this who are the inklings again do you guys uh owen barfield give him a shout out for the theosophists yeah yes yeah. <laughs> got Owen Barfield. Who else? We got uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, and J.R.R. Tolkien, and Charles Williams, who we are talking about today. Um, those are the four, I guess, primary inklings. There were others on the periphery, um, like Hugo Dyson, um, at Warney Lewis, C.S. Lewis's brother, and, and various other, other people. <laughs> That's right. So, so the two most prominent ones, obviously, right up front, Lewis and Tolkien. Everybody's heard of them. Uh, in their day, Charles Williams was, if not as famous, at least as famous in the circles that they moved in, right? But, but these days, not many people have heard of Charles Williams. Um, and part of the reason we wanted to do this podcast is to mm. introduce people, not only to cover works by the Inklings that everybody knows, but to introduce people to um, new works by other members of the Inklings. Um, and uh, Charles Williams was super important um, to, to their development. Um, so, so Megan, who, who was this Charles Williams fellow anyway? 
Yes, I'll field that question. <laughs> um, uh, it's he's he's an interesting character, <laughs> well, to say the least. That's probably a bit of an understatement. Um, actually, there's this um, in uh, there's a book called The Oxford Inklings um, by Colin Durier. I think that's how you say his last name. Uh, and I apologize in advance for, for any mispronunciations that occur in the course of this podcast. I think in some passages later, I'm going to read some Latin. So sorry if I butcher that. Um, but there is a, um, he has a quote actually from John Wayne, who is an undergraduate, not that John Wayne that you're thinking of, John <laughs> W-A-I-N. Um, he was an undergraduate at Oxford uh, while Williams is there during World War II. And he says, how many people have tried to describe this extraordinary man and how his essence escapes them, which is just, I mean, that just encapsulates Williams. Um, but he, he first began his participation with the Inklings near the end of his life. Um, at that point, by the time he started going regularly to Inklings meetings, all but two of his novels were published and most of his uh, central important ideas were firmly cemented in his, in his own mind. So, um, he, he honestly may have left more of an impact on the rest of them than they did on him. Um, that's probably up for debate. Some scholar out there could tell me otherwise. Um, I, think, I think that's probably true. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Certainly on Lewis. Um, yeah. He, he oh yeah. He, he, Lewis was just enamored of him, uh, like completely, um, probably to the chagrin of Tolkien a little bit. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, Tolkien liked Williams well enough. But I do think there is a little bit of some, maybe some jealousy a little bit there. Um, well, wasn't he also concerned, like, because that hideous strength is Lewis's most, yes. um, Charles <laughs> Williams's influenced novel, and Tolkien yeah. hated it because it, it, it was too, yeah. it was too like Williams, right? Is it fair or? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the. Yeah. I want to, well, it, it seems like Lewis was more influenceable as far as the inklings go um, than any of the others. Mm-hmm. And, and I, able to, to pull things in. And sometimes to the chagrin of the people from whom he was borrowing, like Tolkien, right? Um, whereas the others seemed more set, like, this is my. Um, hermeneutically sealed uh, world mm. that you will not enter and nothing else will really, really yeah. mess with that too much. Um, yeah. While there may be inspiration. I don't mm. know. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. <clears throat> but yeah, no, he, um, he was a Londoner rather than an Oxford Don, like a lot of the Inklings. Um, and he had an accent to match that. <laughs> um, and nearly all of his career uh, was spent working at the Oxford University Press in their London offices. Um, and he eventually, he worked his way up there, um, eventually working his way up to uh, being a senior editor. Um, and it's in that capacity where he first read Lewis's, uh, well, what eventually became Lewis's uh, Allegory of Love um, mm -hmm. in proof form. And so and he really admired it. Um, because it was very, he felt, he found tons of similarities in it to his own thinking about romantic, his romantic theology, um, 
and that sort of thing. And um, and what, funnily enough, at the same time that he was reading the Allegory of Love, Lewis was reading uh, Charles Williams' The Place of the Lion um, and just fell in love with it, as one does, <laughs> and um, <laughs> decided that he liked it so much that he was going to write Williams a fan letter, essentially. Um, and it's the most adorable thing. Uh, there's, I, there, it, it's actually been, pub both, of, both of their letters that they wrote to each other uh, have been published online. Um, I can link to that in the show notes because they're just adorable. Yay. Especially Lewis's. <laughs> um, so I can link to those so people can read them. But um, yeah, so their letter, well, Lewis, Lewis's letter arrived at, um, at the Oxford University Press while Williams was writing a letter to um, Lewis. And so they almost crossed in the mail. But um, so that's that, that was the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> and uh, mm. invited Williams to an Inklings meeting <clears throat> in Oxford. And um, and so when when the German Blitz basically forced the Oxford University Press to close their London offices and move all their staff to Oxford, Williams um, ended up in Oxford and so became a regular face at um, at the Inklings meetings. Um, pretty much up until his um, sudden and tragic death on May 15th, 1945, just as World War was ending. Um, and so uh, he was also a, um, he was a deeply committed Anglican his entire life, um, whereas you know, unlike Lewis, who kind of went through a, a phase where he was more agnostic um, than Christian, um, Williams is pretty much firmly Christian his entire life. Um, but he also, um, this is where, this is where it gets, you know, fun. Uh, he also, <laughs> this is where it gets fun. <laughs> he also spent roughly, we're not quite sure, but roughly about 10 years as a member of an esoteric Christian group called the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. What does esoteric mean in this context? <laughs> <laughs> like a, like a secret society, um, like, uh, like a cult, right? Like a like, cult. Like, can, we, can we just call it a cult? I don't, it's a cult. Yeah. It's a cult. Yeah. That's a cult. A cult. <laughs> <laughs> they they rubbed ointment on themselves, but they made sure it was Christian ointment. Right? It was Christian ointment. <laughs> That's true. Oh, it's okay. It's okay, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Now that we've lost half our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, those of you who are so still nice. here. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, <laughs> um, so this group is called Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, which was an offshoot of the much larger and more well-known occult group, the Order of the Order of the Golden Dawn, which included among its members at one point or another, um, Yeats, um, the Irish poet, uh, Alistair Crowley, who's just fun. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, okay. um, and, uh, I, also, um, Arthur Mackin and Evelyn Underhill, um, surprise, surprise, shock and awe. And wait, wait, and, Evelyn uh, Underhill, was she in the Rosie Cross or the, no, she was in the okay. Order of the Golden Dawn, but oh. she, yeah. Okay. But she, there's a whole, we can get into that at some other yeah. time. Okay. She also kind of has a, has a connection to the Inklings, but, um, yeah, but yeah. So A.E. Waite was also in this group. Um, that he may or may not be familiar to listeners, but he um, decided to break away from the Order of the Golden Dawn and make his own little group, which was a little bit more explicitly Christian, 
um, focused on like Christian symbolism and and mysticism and that kind of thing. Um, when we, when we, we when we say this is a cult, like. <laughs> do we mean our moms in the 1980s would have burned all his books because that's that's what i'm thinking right yes <laughs> probably um but yeah they were they weren't it was i, I think a.e wait actually had some experience in the freemasons if i'm remembering correctly but this was not a freemason group um yeah, it was more based around Rosicrucianism, which don't even, I, I can't even begin to get into that because I don't, I am not an expert. I'm not an occult expert. Shock and awe. Well, you need to be an initiate to truly understand. You do, yes. Yeah, you do. And I yeah. am not one. But, but lucky for us, Charles Williams was. He was, yeah. yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and, and really, like, it, Again, obviously, since it was a secret society, we have very little information. Um, I think he even kept his, even though he left the group abruptly um, around 1927 for reasons unknown. We have no idea. Um, Holy Spirit. Uh, yeah. That's, <laughs> I actually do have a theory about that. Um, it has to do with this book, because uh, this book was published in 1930, and he left roughly around 1927. And I think that he wrote this book kind of in response to um, mm. that, just le just leave, leaving that kind of like super secret, we have special knowledge no one else can have unless you get in here. Mm. Um, and this book seems to be advocating for the opposite of that. Like it's, yeah. this is for everybody. The Eucharist is yeah. for everybody, you know. Um, that's my theory. Um, I have no I idea like if there's that. any, scholarship on that but that's that's my running theory right now so um yeah no but this but he, even though he he left abruptly i the his love of ritual and ceremony and mysticism uh just bathes <laughs> all of his work um in in lovely ways i <laughs> just yeah I mean, I, I'd, I'd just say, um, you know, there, there is a really long tradition of Christian hermeticism, yeah. right? Um, and, it, yes. and it extends there. It, it has a real uh, renaissance during the renaissance, but it extends back, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, like, that's one of Lewis's big points about the renaissance. Like, yeah, there's like rebirth of like these mm. certain types of learning that we tend to validate and think really highly of, but there's also a huge rebirth of magic and superstition um, and, 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 and mysticism, you know, for good and ill. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But, um, but, but it extends back even to the middle ages as well. There, there's just interest in, um, I mean, we, we like democracy as Christians, Western Christians living in the 21st century. We don't like weird little groups with secrets. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you were literate for most of human history, you were part of a weird little group with secrets, right? And Christianity <laughs> is one of the religions of the book, right? Um, mm -hmm. So it's really hard to extricate the two. Um, and and we, mm -hmm. we kind of you know, like to think that we've, that we've done that. Um, but, um, but they're, they're not as, you know, the occult, um, in the sense of like some hidden wisdom and hidden knowledge is not as opposed to, uh, Western Christianity and probably other types of Christianity too, as we, you know, as, as we often want it to be because we're, you know, small D Democrats. Um, so, 
I don't know. Uh, it's my two cents. Very good two cents. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he, even, even though he, he comes, he can comes, he comes across as enigmatic, very enigmatic. Um, but, but the, the theological ideas that he presents are just quite frankly, breathtaking. Um, I mean, to be perfectly, I, I, and he, I credit, I credit Charles Williams with helping me to, uh, I guess, retain uh, any, any kind of sense of Christianity, um, at a time mm -hmm. when I was not, not, not really like questioning God, but just being disillusioned with a lot of things, um, feeling that lack of, of wonder and mysticism, you know, with church, it was just kind of a chore. Um, and so when I, when I encountered somebody like Charles Williams, it just breathed new life into my faith, quite frankly. So, um, that's part, that's part of why, that's part of why I'm like, I, like I, I love him so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, he's brilliant. <laughs> and he's brilliant, but also just like his, his writing is gorgeous. If, even if it is sometimes horribly confusing, <laughs> like we'll get into, um, but yeah, his, his, um, he uses this term co-inherence quite a bit. And out of that, everything else flows. Co-inherence is, is, is really a, an early church father term that he tried to reclaim a little bit um, that refers to the relationship, the Trinity, the, the persons of the Trinity. Um, and so he, he, he believes that all humans when baptized into the church kind of start to participate in that Trinitarian relationship in a mysterious way. Not, not, not in the sense of, you know, we're all pantheists. God is all, all is God. Um, but he definitely does take seriously the idea that we are created in God's image. We are image bearers of God. What does that mean? It's got to mean something important. And I'm going to, or he's, he's going to figure out what that is um, and explore that in his writing. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, out of, out of, the idea of coherence flows everything else. Um, his theology of romantic love, where the beloved is is an image of God, and the lover can experience God through the beloved. Um, a lot of that thinking centers on Beatrice from Dante's Divine Comedy. Mm -hmm. He wrote a whole book called The Figure of Beatrice about that, which I have not read. <laughs> that is one of the ones I have not read. Mm -hmm. um, but I hear it's I've, good. <laughs> I've dipped into it. I've dipped into it unsurprisingly, but I've never read, read the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> that's a theme that you'll, that you'll uh, have to remedy that theme. <laughs> um, yeah, that, and then his other kind of major besides the theology of romantic love is the idea of, of substitution and exchange. Yes. Yes. And bearing one another's burdens. He, he thinks that that verse in Galatians, he, he takes that almost quite literally. Um, yeah. um, that we can bear one another's burdens, even metaphysical ones, like someone else's fear, anxiety, mm -hmm. you know, um, he so, says that we are able to take that on for other people. 
Yeah, C.S. Lewis wrote in his letters, he he actually experimented and not in like a experimenting like, oh, I'm going to try this out, but at, in a place of desperation with, with his wife, Joy, right? Like he, he prayed and he asked to take on her physical pain um, when the cancer returned in her leg and he, he experienced great leg pain and his wife had a remission. Is that... Mm-hmm. Am I getting that? Like, yes, correct no, me if yeah. I'm, no. yeah, which is kind of crazy in a weird, like, I don't want to play around too much with that theologically. Uh, like, that's a, I think it can be a dangerous thing to ask for burdens or to ask for, um, I, I think God takes our prayers very seriously and I don't want to get too occultish with them too, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, but I, I think that's really beautiful that there is that documented in, in his letters from his friend's theological idea, um, this, this trial and this testing and this sort of possibly, um, positive outcome. And, and to be clear, of course, uh, the cancer return and Joy died and Lewis died a couple years after. But um, I just, I think that's interesting to, for, for a friend to have such a profound impact, um, especially on someone so serious and thoughtful in his faith. I just, I mean, in general, I, I think Williams is needed now more than ever, um, especially in our increasingly individualized and fractured mm. Um Because he is he is all about relationships with the divine, with each other, um, and the importance of being in relationship with others. Um, and so, and so I, I just, I, I, he's not always the most accessible, (laughs) um, because of his kind of uh, abstruse writing style. Um, and his, you know, personal idiosyncrasies. So some of his biographical details might might turn some people away. Um, as if, they, <laughs> if they if they haven't already, we didn't even get into some of some of the stuff. That's for another episode. Yeah, um, yeah. Actually, I was gonna I was gonna recommend if you do want to do a deep dive into uh, William's biography, what you need to do is you need to go out and you need to purchase yourself this book, The Third Inkling by Greville Lindup. Um, it's, it's amazing. Um, the most deep dive uh, ever, um, and, and a very compelling read, even though it's a, it's a huge tome, but it's really good. Um, also, again, I already mentioned Colin Durier's book, The Oxford Inklings, has a little bit of biographical information about Williams, which is a little bit more digestible, um, if you want that one, or The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings by the Zaleskis um, is also really good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Also a huge tome, but very readable, well worth it. Um, So yeah, if if you want to do a super deep dive, like I did after after reading Descent into Hell and becoming obsessed with Williams, then I read this book by Greville Lindop, The Third Inkling, and... And oh my goodness, it's just, it's amazing. It's, it's, it's disturbing and amazing because just all the nitty gritties in there. Um, so just prepare yourself before, before you go in there. But um, yeah, it's great. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's Williams. 
<laughs> summarize. Yeah, I mean, people, you know, in in his in his time, again, I know I mentioned this before. Just because of the personal magnetism, I think, yes. of, of him, and also because they did admire his poetry, even though I mean, T.S. Eliot really admired his poetry, but he was like. It's kind of hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, he, yes, did, he did, and Auden, both of them were like, "This is great, yeah. but it's really difficult." <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, maybe they were overestimating the reading public when they thought that he would yeah. be like the next great British writer, mm-hmm. right? Which, which is what a lot of people in his day thought, partly because of you know just knowing the guy. Um, yeah, extraordinarily mm-hmm. magnet, magnetic person. Um, and obviously that's most, you know, a lot of that is lost when, yes. you know, when, when someone dies. Um, but, um, um, he's why, by the way, he's why, um, uh, Dorothy Sayers, uh, translated the divine comedy. Uh, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I did not know that they were he actually dedicated. Buddies. She dedicated the Inferno to Charles Williams. Um, I know it's so sweet. I think the actual, I don't have it in front of me, but I think the actual dedication is something like to the, to the master of images, Charles Williams. And it's just like, ah, oh. It's so sweet, and but also just so powerful at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, he was he was really good friends with Dorothy Sayers, actually, and I think he really admired his her detective novels, her Lord Peter Whimsy novels, which it shows in this book because this is very mm-hmm. much yes. is very much a detective story. Yeah. So, and did did not the Duke remind anyone else of Lord Peter? Lord Peter, like a yeah. slightly huh. the, the love of poetry and the, a little a little bit, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, except a staunch Catholic Lord Peter. Yeah, well that's true. Uh, yes. Yeah. Lord Peter's not. <laughs> but no, but just that uh like this is the right thing to do. Like like coming to the right thing out of tradition and like a sense of obligation. Yeah. Um and this is the role to play. I I think yeah. There could be some other parallels in there, but yeah. Yeah. Well, we should probably dive right into actually talking about the book now that, the, now that our first hour is, is gone. We'll probably edit it a little bit, but um, so um, we have a murder in a publishing house um, and um, the murder has happened in a man's office named Lionel Rackstraw. Um, also working at the publishing house are Kenneth Mornington and Stephen Persimmons. Um, I love these names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're pretty great. Um, and uh, that's um, um, pretty much, you know, as far as the people we meet in the first chapter, mm-hmm. that's, that's more or less it, I think. Do we meet anyone else in the, in the first chapter? Uh, the police inspector. That's right. We meet him. He shows up. Um, also, there's a mention of Giles Tumulty. He's not actually in the chapter, but they mentioned that they're publishing um, a book of his called The Historical Vestiges of Sacred Vessels and Folklore, which is just a whale of a title. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a mention of him um, 
And if you if you've already read if you've read many dimensions before coming to this book, you yes. recognize that name. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Spoiler alert. Using that too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. There's some crossover. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That is, I think that is actually the only character crossover between any of the Charles Williams novels, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but yeah, no, there's a mention of him. So he's in there in chapter yeah. one. Um, and then, and then we, we get to chapter two an evening in three home, the evening in three homes, right. Where we meet the other, really all of the other major characters. Um, so we've got, um, um, Lionel Rackstraw, who is a pessimist and seems tailor-made to be a hero in a uh, weird fiction um, story because he's just kind of thinking about how monstrous the world is um, yes. <laughs> and, and discovering this dead body in his office just kind of proves it, right? Um, um, so you've got a... As it would. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's still kind of operating in horror movie mode, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> going home and thinking, oh, what if I get home and my my wife and child are not really my wife and child and, and the world yeah. just seems this insane. But it, it's alienated and, and it, there's also like some dissociating, right? Like mm -hmm. it's it, it almost felt like an episode he was having. Yeah. Um, the unreality of it. Yeah, yeah. He's... Uh, um, it says the LR of his signature seemed now to grow balloon-like and huge about him, volleying about his face at the same time that they turned within and around him in a slimy tangle. So even his signature is wigging him out, um, yeah. and he's finally get, getting home. But it says as he put his key in the lock, he was aware that the thought of Adrian had joined the mad dance of possible deceptions. Um, Adrian, by the way, is his son, his little boy. Um, and it was with a desperate and machine-like courage that he entered to dare whatever horror awaited him, right? <laughs> and meanwhile, Adrian, his son inside, is just like playing trains. With trains. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, he, um, he comes in um, and he's still kind of having this like near Lovecraftian panic attack. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, uh, what what mightn't be true in this terrifying and obscene universe, right? Um, and and that's when. Uh, and then his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Barbara grounds him, right? His wife Barbara. Yeah. Um, and and uh, physically, right? Like it's mm -hmm. her incarnate nature. Um, she hurls herself onto her knees beside him. He caught her hand in his own and felt as if his body was sane, whatever it might be. After all, the universe had produced Barbara. And, and then it goes on from there. Like, like the beloved, the existence of the beloved and her physical presence is what keeps him from going off, right? Uh, which I, I, I am kind of fascinated by Barbara and her, her role in this whole thing throughout. Um, and so we will hit that later when she comes up again. But I... I liked I liked that juxtaposition of the the wife physically grounding him, and then uh, at the end of it, it talks about um, he he brought his wife's wrist to his cheek, and the touch subdued the rising hysteria within him, uh, and it because hysteria like that's feminine, right? Like like that's the 
the female freaking out and needing to be grounded, but it's, it's the reverse here, right? That his, when his mind has betrayed him, his wife's body can be what he can cling to. Which is I mean, hysteria is for you too, if you are an oversensitive Englishman. Uh, you, too, you too can experience hysteria. Um, um, the, uh, um, but, but, but yeah, absolutely. I, the, the same thought occurred to me too. It was interesting having the, you know, having the woman be the one grounding, you know, the man right. in, in this. Um, in reality and in like normal day-to-day mundane things, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so then we get then we get to know more about this Mornington guy, right? Who yes. also works Yay. at the, uh, <laughs> uh, the publishing house. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, Mornington is hanging out with his vicar friend. Um, As one does. Yeah, yeah. Who's who's a little bit of a dope? Um, I'm not gonna lie, um, but um, but the vicar has visiting him the archdeacon, who turns out to be kind of the hero of the whole. Of yeah, the whole yeah. Story. Um, and they're talking about um this. Um, manuscript that the archdeacon is submitting to their publishing company um a book the vicar said the archdeacon's been giving a series of addresses on christianity and the league of nations and he's made yeah. a volume which ought to have a good sale so of course i thought of you which is just to me as detached as the archdeacon is throughout this Mm-hmm. Yeah. How interesting it, it she's writing sense. a political yeah. book. It's it's really fascinating to me. Um, yeah. And and they don't really chase that rabbit much yeah. further. But but it, I, I'd love to know why that's the book that the archdeacon is writing about or is writing. And it sounds like a terrible book, right? To anyone else <laughs> it does. I would not read it. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think that would be a bestseller. Honestly, I, I'd love if after if after all of that, you know, at at the like in the very last chapter, the last page, you know, after the archdeacon, you know, is is taken up or or whatever, it just says, and his book was never published. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, it's 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 just. Um, you know, it's very strange. Um, but, um, but he agrees to go and visit Mornington the next day because Mornington's like, well, I'd probably go to our political editor and they're not going to be really interested in a thing like this, with these chapters. So why don't you bring it by my place and, or my, my office and, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll look at it and, and recommend what I can. I love um, the background on the publishing house, which turns out to be really important, right? Um, yeah. that, that Stephen Persimmons has recently taken over um, the publishing house that had been uh, founded, I guess, by his father, Gregory Persimmons, right? Um, and it says, uh, um, Bring it, bring it along by all means. Persimmons list is the most muddled up thing in London. Foxy flossies for flirtations and notes on black magic considered philosophically. So those are two of their, two of their you know, books are Foxy flossies flirtations 
and then also notes on black magic considered philosophically which i mean i gotta be honest that sounds a little more fun than christianity and the league of nations right? uh, it also sounds a little more like charles williams yeah, yeah. um uh, and, and really, then he says, it kind of encapsulates him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, a, in a terrible, so unfair, so unfair. I would buy either of those. Books. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, he says, but that of course is his father. So there's some excuse, right? So, so the older Persimmons mm-hmm. was mainly printing shady stuff, um, like you know whatever fussy fussy's <laughs> flirtations is. and uh and and black magic books and and persimmons is trying you know stephen persimmons is trying to make it a more reputable press it seems like but unfortunately his old dad is still running things from behind the scenes right um like a you know like a good episode of arrested development um so <laughs> So we have part three of this. Um, oh, should we should we mention the name of the town that the archdeacon is uh, um, archdeacon of? Fartles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fartles apparently is a vulgar English name for the original Latin, um, you know, word which is castra um, parvulorum, right? Um, the the house of the children because there's some uh there's some they say caesar gave it the name because his soldiers caught a lot of british children here and he sent them back to their own people right so you have this little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen um with with our next um person um that we meet who is gregory persimmons who is the guy who founded this publishing house who is also the guy who he says himself here on page what 26 uh, oh yeah i did it i totally did it i killed the guy right um so you have this setup of a murder mystery and then the killer confessing by really the second chapter mainly it seems to like needle his son um, yeah make him more anxious yeah. um yeah so um yeah, do you all have uh, uh, things you noticed about the rest of this chapter? Uh, I, I think I think it works. The, the Gregory Persimmons confession, just because we feel a little bit like his son in the like, uh, why are you telling me all this? What's your game? Is there something even more horrible than murder behind you? Because his his delight is not just needling his son; he's also like threatening him. Like he's saying, "I I would like another child." We find out his wife Stephen's mother is in a mental uh, asylum, so he has literally driven her mad. Uh, he he destroys people, and we're not sure what his game is. So it's the more the fear of okay, there's this body but the body isn't the most interesting thing. Mm-hmm. It draws us into, there's a bigger mystery and a bigger story here than just murder. Um, and uh, honestly, like the, the murder kind of drops off yeah. for most of the book, um, which is interesting because it's such a great opening line. And, and then, and then there, they, he's, Williams isn't as concerned about the corpse at all, really. Um, 
for most of for most of the book. Um, in fact, I think I think at least uh, on first reading, when I first read this, I totally forgot that there was a corpse. <laughs> <laughs> until much later when I was like, oh, is that, is that what's going on? <laughs> yeah. But, but isn't that also so great because the corpse is safe. All has been like taken and set aside. And I, I think narratively, like it's weird, but I think it works with how we, we find out about the murdered man and, mm -hmm. and what has happened to him since. Um, I also, I love, I, I love Mornington and I, I love this description of why he's a Christian. Uh, on page 20, uh, Mornington suspected his Christianity of being the inevitable result of having moved for some time as a youth of 18 in circles which were, in a rather detached and superior way, opposed to it. But it was a religion which enabled him to despise himself and everyone else without despising the universe, thus allowing him at once in argument or conversation the advantages of the pessimist and the optimist. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I, I have that one underlined. Too. <laughs> yeah, it's, I do too. Um, yeah. yeah, it's so the, you, you can see kind of the reactionary and the, the contrarian nature that he has, but, but also the realistic, like, I, I know I messed up. I, I see what other people do, but the world is still good. Like there is still that the universe is not despicable. Right. It's, it's something twisted and bent within us. Um, and I, I, I love how that comes out with, um, with the archdeacon as well. Actually, um, another portion of this, uh, when the, uh, the vicar is talking to Mornington um, and he says, um, I'm afraid this interest in what they mm. call the occult is growing. It's the result of the lack of true religion in these days and a wrong curiosity. Oh, wrong, do you think, Mornington mm. asked. Would you say any kind of curiosity was wrong? What about Job? Job, the archdeacon asked. Well, sir, I always understood that where Job scored over the three friends was in feeling a natural curiosity why all those unfortunate things happened to him. They simply put up with it. But he, so to speak, asked God what he thought he was doing. And I, yeah. just, I just really like that, that yeah. passage of, of, you know, oh, you know, curiosity isn't really that bad. You know, um, and sometimes it, it's it's even better than not being curious at all. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the problem comes when you you know pro you get I guess you get curious about the wrong things, um, and that leads to you know dark places that one probably shouldn't go, such as Gregory Persimmons. So yeah, yeah, I I, I also like what he does with the with the vicar here, um, sort of making him sort of kind of vomit platitudes yeah. right that that the right. other two christians can mm -hmm. kind of show themselves to be more interesting and yeah more, uh faithful in the a way um, yeah yeah um so um so mornington says uh or or in in response to that um the vicar shook his head he was told he couldn't understand he was taunted with not being able to understand, which isn't quite the same thing, Mornington answered. As a mere argument, there's something lacking, perhaps, in saying to a man who's lost his money and his house and his family and is sitting on the dustbin all over boils, look at the hippopotamus. Uh, <laughs> uh, right? <laughs> uh, 
So let's see. So that brings us um, to, to actually what sets up um, people knowing about the grail. What happens, what happens in the next chapter in Archdeacon in the city or in the next part, I guess. You, so this is where the Archdeacon, he, I guess he, he's reading the manuscript of, of the aforementioned uh, Giles Tumulty manuscript of, of, of his book um, with the whale of a title. Um, <laughs> and he's, as he's reading it, it's, he's reading about the Holy Grail. Um, and, and there's a passage in there that it seems to indicate that uh, the Holy Grail has been located and it's in a church in Fardles where he happens <laughs> to be. <laughs> you know, he was previously unaware of this. Um, and and so it turns out though that that passage was not supposed to be it's not was not supposed to be in the final product um which which causes some tension between Giles Tumulty and um Persimmons uh, Stephen Persimmons uh eventually but um because you know you don't I guess it's, it's poor etiquette to let your um you know your proofs be read by anyone other than who needs to be reading them to get it published um so that's how the archdeacon finds out about um, the Grail, and of course he's 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 a little he's in disbelief. Uh, he's like, I don't know, we don't have the Grail. What what are you talking about? <laughs> and so uh, so he's got to go. Uh, he's going to go investigate that claim. The other major thing that that happens here is we have the Rackstraws, right? Lionel and his and his wife and and their son being invited to, as it happens, you know, by coincidence, Gregory Persimmons, who's a, who's a buddy of Giles Tumulty, who knows where the Grail is. Um, Gregory Persimmons has just taken a place in in Fardles or near Fardles, and uh, and he asks the Rackstraws if they would like to come join him. Um, you know, down there in, in the country. Um, so, um, he's, uh, the, the, the kind of, uh, contrast between the way he is publicly in this publishing house yeah. and the way the that, kindly old man who's mm -hmm. offering us a nice vacation. Yeah. 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 Is, is, uh, fascinating. Um, I think it just goes to show the same way you don't climb into sleighs and take whatever uh, which is giving you to eat. Like you also don't maybe take every free vacation offered yes. by random old dude. Like I, that's something I've tried to live by, but <laughs> thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny. Like you, you keep seeing him, um, uh, taking an interest in Adrian and Lionel mm -hmm. and Barbara, like, oh, thank goodness, someone's taking that kid yeah. off their hands, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, there's just one of him, for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, he, he doesn't seem like a fairly poorly behaved child. Um, no, he's just but, playing with his trains. But yeah, he's like, yeah, I'll totally watch it. You know, I'll watch Adrian if, you know, you guys want to go on some dates or something like that. That's... You know, that's, I wonder, like, I, now that I'm sitting here thinking about this, I wonder how much of this is actually Williams inserting himself a little bit because, because uh, his only he he only had one son, um, Michael, and uh -oh. 
and I think he was born, I think he was born in around 1922 or something. So he probably, when this book came out, he was about eight. He's probably Adrian's age. So I'm just wondering if like, I, like, I don't, I don't know, again, read Greville Lindop's book for all that nitty gritty, but like, I, I don't know how, I don't think he had the best relationship with his son uh, mm -hmm. up until, I know, up until, um, again, near the end of his life, I think he tried to like make some, make, make some, you know, advances in, in, in that regard. But um, yeah, so I don't, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I wonder if there is a little bit of that, like, right, what you know, like, well, yes. this is my relationship with my son. And I don't, I don't much care for children, all that, all that deeply. So, you know, um, yeah, no, that just occurred to me. Like, I wonder how much of that is, is in here. Yeah. I know. I love this. Uh, this is much later when they're in Fartles, but when, when um, Rackstraw says, anyone that will take Adrian off my hands for a little while can knock all the archdeacons in the country on the head, so far as I'm concerned. Like, <laughs> very different attitude. Just please take my children. Thank you. Like, are you a little creepy right now? I don't care. Just take them. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What is my son saying about secret pictures? I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> whatever. You know kids and their secret pictures. Um, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it is interesting to me because it seems the way I read this this time, um, and I could be wrong, um, is when Barbara on page, you know, 39 says, um, and Gregory's just volunteered to have them stay mm -hmm. near his place, um, take Adrian off his hands. Um, Barbara says, what a divine, what a divine creature, Barbara oh, said, yeah. going down the <laughs> stairs. Adrian, darling, we're really going away. Would you like to go into the country? Right. But that exclamation, what a divine creature. I don't think... You know, it Williams always means more than yeah. He says, you know, he he likes to take the things that people say and and um, you know, read, have you read into them deeply. Um, and I think you know, Gregory's obviously up to something. He's obviously a thoroughly evil man, but I wonder if there's not some mm. aspect of his personality that has the capacity to. Um, actually be really good with kids um he 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 seems like he has the ability anyway to um to be a decent babysitter if he wasn't so deeply corrupted right um partly because he's called a divine creature partly because when he attends later on in the book um, this this black mass right um uh he that is the part of him that is asked of of him is is this um you know this this ability to um relate to children and there are other places where like batesby you know the vicar says oh yeah you know he has really great views on education which of course he doesn't but right. the fact yeah. that that is an a facet of his personality and kind of the last facet of his personality is sort of be entirely corrupted is interesting to me. Yeah. Isn't, uh, I wonder if it's, hmm, if it's the last thing to be corrupted, because isn't that also what 
what scares the archdeacon is that he said children shouldn't be taught um, what they is it what they do is wrong. What is what is the thing he says that freaks oh, out the, the archdeacon? Um, oh yeah, I've, no, here it is. It's um, yes, Mrs. Rackstraw. I'm sure that's the best way. You can't teach them what to want and go for because you don't know their minds, but you can teach them what not to do. Just a few that's simple right. rules about what's wrong. Be afraid to do wrong. That's what I used to tell Stephen. That's what he says. Yeah. So just be, and that's afraid, be afraid to do wrong. <laughs> and that's fear. the archdeacon is like, no, like that's yeah. there's something off about this guy. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Be afraid to do wrong, huh? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I was also thinking too, like, because throughout the whole book, Gregory is shown to be kind of stuck at the level of desire. Like he still desires, like that's where he is. Whereas in contrast to later characters who we will get, to um, who have completely rejected anything and everything, um, he, he still retains that sense of like he wants things. They're the wrong things, but he still is experiencing that very human, uh, you know, it's it's human nature to desire things. Um, we just have to direct them. We do have to direct that desire in the in the correct direction. Um, and so I wonder if it's if it's that, and then I because I I think about um, um, in Dante's Inferno the levels of hell get increasingly less human the farther you go down essentially like the I think level two the level closest to limbo is lust so that's very much a desire it's just a corrupt desire same thing with like greed and envy are all kind of in that um, you know. Uh, category of desire it's just wrong and so that's why it's it's higher up in hell and not as deep um so i wonder how much of that do is kind of playing into william thought because obviously he read dante <laughs> as we've already mentioned um and so there's just kind of that idea of well you're you're evil but you're you're this is the kind of evil you are and there's still there's still a way out for you yes if you take it yeah um the the further you go the the more disconnected you become from what makes you human that being desire community love then yeah. then you're in hell and you know that's that's where you're going to stay there's no way out once you get which once you get down in there um so i think that may have something to do with it um as well he still kind of has that desire to maybe be a father figure um and so that's kind of why I, that may be why he is asked to sacrifice Adrian mm -hmm. to, yeah. to kind of achieve and achieve an, the next level of, of whatever, <laughs> yeah. of, of yeah. being a Satanist essentially. So <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting because in Dante, possibly the most sympathetic, well, one of the most sympathetic figures that you find in hell is Dante's old teacher mm -hmm. um, who, um, who's, um, oh shoot, I'm blanking on his name. Um, I'll come to me in a minute. Um, but, but Dante finds his own teacher in the ring of the Sodomites. Um, and they're, uh, damned to forever run around in circles and never get anywhere because they were treacherous against nature. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, he, he talks with, um, with, with this old teacher of his, um, and he, um, he's told at the end, like his teacher gives a kind of a nice 
you know, speech and, and, and talks a little bit about politics as you do, you know, um, in, in, uh, um, Florence, in uh, yeah, in, in hell and, and, uh, uh, and he says, uh, follow your star and you cannot miss the glorious port. And that's the last thing that Dante's very, you know, Dante's teacher to whom he owed a lot and who he was like completely surprised to find in hell. Um, it's the last thing he tells him, right? And this is, but this is advice from a guy who's in hell, follow your star and you cannot miss the glorious port. Um, and what was interesting to me reading this, um, again is twice. I think Gregory says this brings up following stars, um, uh, which is, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting which which does cast him as as kind of a, a teacher and also somebody yeah. who doesn't have maybe such great advice um but maybe has that aspect of him that is admirable um that, that he could you know he could be a teacher he could be a good teacher um mm. to all of our listeners remember follow your star uh. <laughs> and you cannot miss that glorious port don't do it don't do um, it <laughs> Stay away from your star. Stay away from your star. (laughs) Don't go near it. Um, This podcast takes a firm stand on Satan. Can we? Can we? Can we just say that? full of joy, unscheduled on the Geeson plan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. I'm Chris Pipkin. And we I'm Megan Logsdon. That's, we, yeah. <laughs> what order? <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I had a little, like, uh, oh one of those things. <laughs> Take two. Um, wow. All right, let me try it again. Yes.